Good to see you folks this Lord's Day morning. And uh, let me hopefully hopefully have a lesson in front of you of God's decree, number 10, um, chapter 3, London Baptist Confession. And turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And let us pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for this day, the the Lord's day, the first day of the week. We can gather together as a people of God to worship you and to praise you and uh, to... um, Subject our, our minds to your holy revelation. We, we thank you over and over that you have not left us in the dark, but you have given us the light of your holy word. And we thank you for that. And we do pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would enlighten our minds and our hearts to perceive marvelous things out of your holy word. I would pray for the, the help of your Holy Spirit during this time together to uh, communicate your holy word in a way that is honoring to thee. And I, I pray that it would be uh, good for our souls uh, this day as we gather together and prepare even for, for worship. So direct us and, and guide us by your precious spirit and, and might it all redound to thy glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the, the final study um, in this uh, section on uh, of the decrees of God or of God's decrees. And uh, last time we focused on paragraph 6. And um, so this morning we'll look at paragraph 7. It's, uh, it's 3.8. It's, it's, it's the same material, but this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, just the printout that I have. Um, but the emphasis is how to respond. Kind of a, a, one of two main emphases today. One is to, how to respond rightly to the doctrine of predestination and or election. Um, and uh, as, if I were only to look at paragraph 7 today, it would be a, a fairly short lesson. And uh, you'll notice that there's kind of a lengthy quote uh, from Robert Shaw that takes up pages 1 and 2. And he, he elaborates a little bit on this whole idea of honoring the way that we respond to God with regard to the doctrine of predestination. Um, and, and he makes it very clear that predestination is no impediment to embracing the gospel, and also it's no hindrance to a free offer of the gospel. So um, that is is very helpful. And uh, so what I want to try to do this morning is take a few minutes. We'll just look at the paragraph and then kind of work through this particular quote. Um, And then because he he deals with this, this theme of predestination being no hindrance to the free offer of the gospel, I'm going to just share some thoughts on the subject of evangelism and kind of just fits in this year, fits in, I hope, with the idea of making a transition from one year to the other, and, and we have opportunities to maybe share, and so I'll say a bit more about that when we get there. But um, first of all, just notice the, the, the paragraph there at the top of your notes. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, uh, that men attending, excuse me, that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. Um, Socialist doctrine afford matter of praise 
and, and, and these next sentences especially bring out how to respond to it. So shall this doctrine afford a matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. And so I'm just going to kind of slowly work through this quote. And again, it's kind of long, but I hope it's helpful to your, your thinking process. Uh, Shaw writes, the doctrine of predestination is indeed a high mystery. One of the deep things of God, which our, our feeble intellects cannot fully comprehend in our inquiries about it, we ought to repress a vain curiosity and not attempt to be wise above what is written. But since the doctrine is revealed by God in his word, it is a proper subject for sober investigation and ought to be published from the pulpit and press. Calvin justly remarks that those things which the Lord hath laid up in secret we may not search. Those things which he hath brought openly abroad we may not neglect. Lest either on the one part we be condemned to vain curiosity or on the other part unthankfulness. And then I think this next section is very helpful. Shaw writes, were this doctrine either dangerous or useless, God would not have revealed it. And for men to attempt to suppress it is to arraign the wisdom of God as though he foresaw not the danger which they would arrogantly interpose to prevent. I just thought that was a very good point because predestination and election are in the Bible. It's not like God thought, gee, I made a mistake. This is going to be a troubling doctrine to people. And I thought, I thought this was very helpful. Um, Whosoever, adds Calvin, laboreth to bring the doctrine of predestination into misliking, he openly saith evil of God, as though somewhat had, somewhat had unadvisedly slipped from him, which is hurtful to the church. This doctrine, however, ought to be handled with special judgment and prudence, avoiding human speculations and adhering to what is plainly revealed in the scriptures. When prudently discussed, it will lead neither to licentiousness, like loose living, nor despair, but will eminently conduce to the knowledge, establish, and comfort of Christian, establishment and comfort of Christians. It ought to be remembered that no man can know his election prior to his conversion. Wherefore, instead of prying into the secret purpose of God, he ought to attend to his revealed will, that by making sure his vocation, he may ascertain his election. The order and method in which this knowledge may be attained is pointed out by the Apostle Peter when he exhorts Christians to give all diligence to make their calling and election sure. Their eternal election must remain a profound secret until it be discovered to them by their effectual calling in time. But when they have ascertained their calling, they may thence infallibly conclude that they were elected from eternity. Election, then, gives no discouragement to any man in reference to obeying the calls and embracing the offers of the gospel. The invitations of the gospel are not addressed to men as elect, but as sinners ready to perish. All are under the same obligation to comply with these invitations, and the encouragement from Christ is the same to all. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. I just highlighted that part because I thought it was just it was very helpful. And the doctrine of election must have a sanctifying and consoling influence on all who sincerely obey the gospel. It is calculated to inspire them with sentiments of reverence and gratitude towards God to humble their souls in the dust before the eternal sovereign, to excite them to diligence in this discharge of duty, to afford them strong consolation under the temptations and trials of life, and to animate them with a lively hope of eternal glory. So that's the kind of thing you might 
read over a few times, I found it very helpful in terms of especially how we respond to the concept or the reality of predestination as well as um, election. And now I kind of want to switch gears a little bit here into the, the subject of sharing the gospel and evangelism. And this is kind of just um, over the, the broader category of just maybe some thoughts on evangelism as we come into a new year. There's people that we certainly pray about. You have opportunities to share the gospel, and many of you are very fervent in doing that already, which I'm very thankful for. So this is just kind of along that line, and, and hopefully there will be something here that will uniquely um, uh sort of lodge itself in your thinking process. So we'll just kind of spend the rest of our time uh, under, under this heading. Uh, preliminary thoughts, and, and here if you would, turn to Romans chapter 9 and verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 9 and actually verses 1 through 3. A preliminary thought would be the desire to see people truly saved, truly converted. Uh, Paul writes here, I'm, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And then he says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So here you have the Apostle, the Apostle Paul revealing his great desire to see people converted. He wrote about election. He wrote about predestination. He wrote about Jacob, have I loved, Esau, have I hated. And yet you see this great desire of his heart to see people converted and, and come to Christ. Secondly, would the, the concern to avoid giving false hope, and that's just across the page. And um, this, by the way, this is kind of the same. I have quite a few uh, texts printed out here. We'll be looking up quite a few, and as I indicated last week, um, once I find it, I'm going with it because you should be able to find it faster than I do anyway. So we'll just go for it. But um, the concern to avoid giving false hope. Uh, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So there's a concern not to give false hope in communicating the gospel. Well, then thirdly, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There's a thought about the exclusiveness of the gospel. And that is Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. By exclusive, we're especially focusing on the person of Christ. He is the only way for a lost person to be reconciled to God the Father. And then a fourth place, the necessity of maintaining the purity of the gospel. And you might turn here to 2 Timothy 1. It's not in your notes, but 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Uh, the necessity of maintaining the purity of the gospel. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, 13. Paul writes to Timothy, this is his last letter, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So the responsibility that is laid upon him is not to change anything, but just keep it intact and communicate it in, a, in the same way in which he had received it. Um, so there's this need to maintain the purity of the gospel uh, relatedly because the pure message of the gospel is power. It's the power of God into salvation. And then if you turn to Galatians 1, 8, and 9, the true message of the gospel must not be altered. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. The true message of the gospel must not be altered or changed. Um, Paul writes, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, uh, he is to be accursed. 
as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. And if you, if you go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and then verse 2, and I would, I would just emphasize there, there is pressure to change the message of the gospel. It can be for different reasons. Maybe we want to see more people respond to it. Maybe we want to see more people receptive to it. So there's pressure to change the gospel to accommodate um, the, sometimes the, 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 the whims of men and women. But notice 2 Timothy 4.2 where Paul says, Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And here's the reason. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And sound doctrine, by the way, especially produces godliness. And so I would suggest they don't want to hear the kind of doctrine that really impinges upon the way in which they are living their life. Uh, preach the word, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate or pile up for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. So the, the true message of the gospel must not be changed. And there's pressure from time to time, a lot, sometimes even within the church, to change the message of the gospel. So with that said, we'll look at some central themes related to the gospel and evangelism and, and four themes here, which we'll just touch on. First of all is the emphasis of the activity of God in saving sinners. And this is really the source of confidence that anybody will be saved, that God is acting and that he saves sinners. And uh, some of these texts we've touched on recently, but Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9, part of his prayer, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Acts 15.11, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord. Uh, Matthew 1.21, she shall bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. 1 Timothy 1.15, it's a, trust, a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 2 Timothy 1.8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a, a, a holy calling, not according to our works. So one thing we would emphasize is that is the centrality of the activity of God in saving sinners. God is the one who does the saving. Um, number two kind of puts that into perspective. Why is it that God must save sinners? Man's moral and spiritual condition before God demands that it must be God who is saving sinners. And under this, uh, we notice that man's, there's an inability to respond to God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Man's inability to change his own nature. Uh, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. And then the need for God to work in man's heart, John 6, 44, No one can come to me, no one can come to me, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then the, the extent of man's moral and spiritual inability. I mean, how bad off is man anyway by nature? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all things, or all else, and it's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. 
for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Then Ephesians 4.18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And then man exists in a state of spiritual death, and, and that draws our attention to the inability that he has in and of himself to respond to the truth of the gospel. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.5, even when you were dead in our, excuse me, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And then Colossians 2.13, but when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, has, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Man by nature um, is a servant of sin. Romans 6.20, uh, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Man by nature is helpless before God. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. By nature, he's an enemy of God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And then you add into that the nature of Satan influence, Satan's influence on unsaved man. Ephesians 2.2, 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So in, in light of that, here's summary thought number one. Um, with the above descriptions in mind, we must conclude that something profoundly powerful must happen for man to respond to the gospel. If this description is true, and it is, then something profound and deep must happen if a person is going to respond to the gospel. I've listed Ezekiel 37 here. You might just turn back there to, for a moment. Ezekiel chapter 37. And, and this is a, an encouraging chapter with respect to this. You'll re recall this is the, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones that Ezekiel had. And uh, this, is, um, this is really what was hope to the exiles. It was given for that reason in hope of a future restoration. But it's been associated with the final general resurrection. And so I just wanted to kind of read, to, to read it to you. And it gives us a hope that it, it is God who gives life and, and God is able to do so. But Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me uh, out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He caused me to pass. He caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, "Son of man, can these bones live?" And I answered, "O Lord God, you know." He said again to me, "Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord." Thus says the Lord of God to these bones: Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. And I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And the, the, the rest of the verses, verses 11 through 14, explain that further. But if you notice in verse 4, as you're kind of reading through this, 
he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That sounds like an exercise in futility to preach to dry bones, and it is unless God is able to make them live. It is unless God is able to impart life. That's what I like about this passage. There's such a stark contrast here. You have this, this whole vision of the valley of dry bones here. And it fits in a little bit. The previous chapter in verse 25, chapter 36, verse 25, uh, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. Okay, then uh, number three. So man's moral and spiritual condition before God makes it clear that God has to act, and he is able to raise the dead to new life. Uh, number three, the effects of God's activity in saving sinners. What, what happens to somebody if they're saved? What happens to them if they are converted? Well, the true biblical gospel produces holiness of life because Jesus has received a Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you get a chance to reread the account of the rich young ruler, you'll see that he, he was unwilling to submit to the lordship of the person of Christ. But the true biblical gospel results in holy living because of the nature of repentance, the character of repentance. Uh, W.E. Vine, always in the New Testament, always uh, excuse me, in, in involving a change for the better, an amendment, and always, except in Luke 17, of repentance from sin. Uh, with respect to the now and the New Testament, the subject chiefly has reference to repentance from sin. And this change of mind involves both turning from sin and a turning to God. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And I would just suggest to you that the Acts of the Apostles is really a helpful model in how we are supposed to share the gospel with the unsaved. And you find this concept of repentance over and over and over again. So if you're thinking, I know I, I, I want to share the gospel with this person, at least one thing to be clear about is they need to repent, they need to turn from their sin and turn to the person of Christ. Now, the true biblical gospel results in holiness of life because salvation is accomplished by God, because it is something that God is doing. Um, shall we, she shall bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. And we know the true biblical gospel produces holiness of life because of the clear scriptural statements which depict moral and spiritual transformation. And I touched on this last week, but you might turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because it seems to me this is such a clear um, a clear statement of this, that there will be transformation when a person is converted. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and then beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then verse 11 says, such were some of you. You were in that category, but you were washed, 
That is, you were, you were cleansed, you were purified, you were sanctified, that, that you were consecrated, you were set apart, you were justified. That's on the basis of the blood of Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the spirit of our God. So he's saying, this is what you were, but not anymore. Not anymore, because of this profound work of God in salvation. So another summary thought would be a recognition of man's true condition. The effects of God's saving activity does not mean that we do not evangelize, nor does it mean there's no hope of success. However, it does help us to understand how we should evangelize. We should seek to employ those means, methods, which God has ordained in his word for such an enterprise. So then number four, um, what are the means that God has ordained for the promoting of the gospel? And under here I have uh, two or three of these. One is fervent prayer to God in behalf of lost souls. And some of these I think are important because one might conclude, you probably wouldn't, I mean, you guys you wouldn't, but there could be a tendency if, if one thinks, well, a person has chosen him before the foundation of the world, they're gonna be called when God calls them. Therefore, I'll just chill and not really worry about it when they'll come when they come. But, but here, here are some means that God has also established. One is fervent prayer to God in behalf of souls. And the basis, by the way, for praying fervently is a necessity that God has to act. We're talking dry bones here. So we, we need to pray that God is going to act and God is going to change a person's heart and life. So that the reason for fervency resides in our understanding of the condition of man. You and I can give a what we think is a pretty good gospel presentation, but if God doesn't act, it's going to be, well, hey, thanks for sharing. Let's go out for coffee or whatever. So um, in James 5.16, confess your faults to one another. Uh, and pray, pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Um, and then Paul writes in, in, in um, Romans 10, 1, Brethren, my heart's desire, and he says, My prayer to God for them is their salvation. So here we have the example again of the Apostle Paul. He is praying for their salvation. Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. So fervency is the nature of any prayer that is honoring to God because it's the character of God for pleasing religion. And here the text I have in this regard is, I'll just read this to you. It's um, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16. Jesus says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And then you might turn to Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. It's a good text in connection with this, this idea of prayer, but especially fervent prayer for lost souls. Colossians chapter four uh, and then verse 12. Colossians chapter four and verse 12. Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greeting. And then notice this, this statement, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. He's not talking specifically about prayer for salvation there, but his, his manner of prayer. He's always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. I have a quote here from David Brainerd on June the 30th, 1744. He wrote in his journal, I saw how God had called out his servants to prayer and made them wrestle with him when he designed to bestow any great mercy on his church. Kind of an, another thought related to prayer, and I heard Martin Lloyd-Jones bring this out at one time, that whenever you sense an inclination to pray, you should pray. Whenever there's a sense in your soul, and, and, and the Lord will lay a person on your heart, sometimes it's for salvation, sometimes it's just for other issues, it's, it's the right things to respond in prayer. Well, a second means that God especially uses in bringing people to himself, of course, it's the ministry of the word. And uh, in 1 Peter, uh, towards the end of the New Testament, chapter 1, 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Verse 23, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. And if you just turn back to James 1.18, a similar point is made, James 1.18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we'd be, we'd be kind of first fruits among his creatures. Um, so it's especially the ministry of the word. It can be the word preached. It can be the word just shared in more of an informal way. But if you, if you turn back to Acts 2, verses 37 and 38, Acts chapter 2, and verses 37 and 38, there's a good example of this. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Verses 37 and 38. Verse 37 begins like this. Um, when they heard this, the question is, what did they hear? Well, the word that Peter had just communicated, it was a, a, a saving word. It was a convicting word. And, and, and the word is what had the effect upon them. And then they were pierced to the heart and said to, to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And it's, it's the word communicated that, that caused them to want to respond. Um, and then kind of a, a, a final thought here, um, elements of the gospel to emphasize if you have only a short time with someone. This is from a, a friend of mine, Earl Blackburn, used to pastor in, in the area of La Mirada, and he's pulling this from uh, the death of death and the death of Christ by John Owen. So it's um, from John Owen to Earl Blackburn, from me to you. And um, if you have just a short period of time, and in the interest of time here, all this kind of the main headings here, Recognize, number one, all men are sinners. They can't, cannot do any, anything to save themselves. It's kind of a starting point by way of recognition. We understand that. Second, Jesus Christ, God's Son, is a perfect Savior of sinners, even the worst. Now, if you get a chance, I was going to read this, but I, I won't. Um, um, a few weeks ago, Mark read from Second Chronicles 33, verses 1 through 13. That's the conversion of Manasseh. Um, he fits into this category even of the worst. Remember, he was involved in child sacrifice, sorcery, all these terrible things. But then he, he, he calls out to God. God has mercy on him, and he saves him. So if you just want to read about even the worst, Manasseh is a good example of that. Well, and by the way, you probably have had those kind of conversations anyway with people that they may think, look, I have done this or that or the other thing. God could never save me. I'm too great of a sinner. You know, there, there are people that think in those terms, and such is, is not the case. So number three, um, faith, the Father and the Son have promised that all who know themselves to be sinners and put faith in Christ Jesus as Savior shall be received into favor and none cast out. And then just to kind of hit this note again about repentance, God has made repentance and faith a duty requiring of every soul who hears the gospel a serious, full casting and rolling of the soul upon Christ as an all-sufficient Savior, Savior, able to deliver and save to the utmost them that come to God by him, ready, able, and willing through the preciousness of his blood and sufficiency of his ransom to save every soul that shall freely give up themselves unto him for that end. Okay, well, let us pray. Shall we? <laughs>
Father, this morning we thank you for the time together and we, we thank you for the gospel. And I, I pray it would be um, clarifying to our minds and also a tonic to our soul just as we think about the, the soul-saving gospel we've all experienced in your providence and your goodness. And I pray this, um, this exercise and, and this time together would be helpful to our own minds and hearts. And I, I would pray it would be useful as we in the coming days, have opportunities to, to speak with men and women about the eternal status of their soul before a, an infinitely holy God. I, I pray you'd give us courage, you'd give us strength, you'd give us wisdom, you'd give us insight as we would convey your pure and precious and, and holy word. Father, this day we pray that you would continue to bless our time together. We, we pray that fellowship would be precious to our hearts and souls. And as we gather together to worship this morning, we pray for a, a, a clear sense of your mercy and your glory and your grace and your goodness and empower us to worship you and to praise you and to delight in thee. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> 